0: Grant them eternal rest, O Lord, and let perpetual light shine upon them. Those are some of the most frequently set words in religious music, and for a very good reason. After all, there are few needs in life more urgent than the need to make sense of loss and of our own inevitable ending. Both those needs can be felt in that music. It's the beginning of the Requiem by Gabriel Faure. It's one of the best loved of all settings of the Roman Catholic Missa Pro Defunctis, the Mass for the Dead. But in fact, Faure's Requiem is also one of the most unorthodox in all the repertory, as we'll see in this programme. You could also say that it's one of the most personal. Faure said that he began work on it purely for the pleasure of it. This may seem odd in an age which tends to shy away from anything connected with real mortality. But this was the age that we in England call the Victorian era. And this was a time when it seems sometimes that people positively reveled in mortality, anything connected with death. In the first performance of the original version of the Requiem in 1888 at the Paris Church of La Madeleine, the Requiem was used for a funeral of a certain Mr. Joseph de la souffache But almost certainly for Foray, there was added emotional impetus given by the loss of his own father in 1885 and then by his mother two years later. In other words, the year Foray began work on the Requiem allegedly for pleasure. We can catch hints of the gravity of Foray's loss, even in some of the most luscious music in this requiem. For instance, in those strange Foray-ish shifts in harmony, which seem to undermine the sense of sweet stability in the music, to perhaps to induce a delicately questioning note. part of the Offertorium, the second movement of Foray's Requiem. Foray's remark about writing the Requiem for pleasure does make sense on more than one level, not just in the quietly voluptuous character of some of the harmonies. As anyone with even the most cursory knowledge of the text must realise, this is a remarkably consoling Requiem. Foray takes opportunities to underline this that clearly didn't occur to some other composers. Take the setting of the Sanctus, holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of your glory. The words in the book of Revelation conjure up the image of vast choirs of angels surrounding the throne of God and hymning him for all eternity. For most composers, this is an opportunity to create something overwhelmingly majestic, as in another famous requiem. Mozart in the Sanctus from that famous requiem. Similar pine-tingling moments in Verdi's Requiem and in Benjamin Britten's War Requiem, to name just two famous examples. Foray couldn't be much less like any of these, especially in the first line. There's not a hint in his setting of the bigness of God, which always for me conjures up the image of the chaplain in Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, intoning before his congregation, O Lord, ooh, you are so big, to which the congregation, of course, devoutly respond. How can you do justice to an idea like the immensity of God anyway? Foray decides to opt for something utterly different in style and scale. really departs from the norm and from the dogmatic views enshrined in the standard Requiem text can be seen in his choice of which bits of the text he chose to set. In the original 1888 performance there were just five movements, the introit and Kyrie which we sampled at the beginning of the program, the Sanctus that we've just heard, the Pie Jesu with its famous ethereal soprano solo, Agnus Dei, Lamb of God, and finally in Paradisum, Now, the last is not properly part of the Requiem Mass text, but it's one of the responses from the burial service that occurs afterwards. It's the invocation to the angels to lead the departed into paradise. Once again, the dominant sound is of the soprano voice, now the sopranos of the choir. And it's clear that Forey was thinking very specifically of children's voices, not, as he put it in a rarely barbed comment, old goats who have never been loved. I wonder what he'd think of some modern performances. Instead, Fourier attempts to create a mood of serene confidence. I wonder if Foray's edition of the In Paradisum prayer at the end of his requiem influenced Benjamin Britten when he added the same text at the end of his war requiem, significantly also using children's voices, boys' voices. It's unsettlingly poignant in the Britten, especially because it's used after the solo setting of Wilfred Owen's desperate poem Strange Meeting, an account of two soldiers killed in battle who finally meet up in hell. The prayer picks up so tellingly as the soldiers repeat the last words of Owen's unfinished poem, Let us sleep now. The most radical departure of all in Foray's Requiem can be seen in which parts of the text he doesn't set. A huge part of the standard text for the Mass of the Dead is the Dies Irae, the Day of Wrath, an agonized and sometimes blood-curdling anticipation of the horrors of the Last Judgement and of the subsequent eternal torments of the damned. There's a great deal of it. It's a very long poem and the anguished petitions by the terrified soul to be delivered from quenchless fire and the associated bosch Bruegel horrors have been captured with vivid intensity by some composers, most famously of all by Verdi in his setting of the Dies Irae. There’s a great opera composer relishing the opportunity for vivid drama presented by divine wrath and the dissolving of worlds. A similar elemental fury perhaps for the great storm that opens Otello. Only very occasionally in foray do we get so much as a hint of that sort of thing. The word requiem, rest, is heard over and over again, the phrase dies ire only once. <laughs> I don't know what Foray thought of Verdi's Requiem. It had been a huge international success for well over a decade by the time he started his own Requiem. But there was one other, even more spectacular, blood-and-thunder setting of this text, and especially of the Dies Irae, that Foray did know and cordially loathed. Though, as always, or I should say as almost always, Foray was exquisitely polite in the way he expressed himself on the subject. Talking of the Grand Messe des Morts by his great countryman Hector Berlioz in 1904, Foray called it a work in which those with a taste for large-scale dramatic effects and an indifference towards religious music may find equal satisfaction. He recoils with barely concealed disgust at Berlioz's vast forces, including four brass bands and sixteen timpani. Elias used these to evoke the sounds of the last trumpet, Tuba Mirum, announcing the ultimate expression of divine displeasure. That's a rather different take on the Last Judgment image than that we heard in the Foray a couple of minutes ago. With all that in mind, it's especially fascinating to look at the first version of Foray's Requiem or the first versions of it, especially when it comes to the forces required. For the first performance in La Madeleine, Foray asked simply for organ, harp, timpani, violas, cellos and basses a small group, and a single solo violin in the Sanctus only. For 1893, Foray added bassoons, horns, and trumpets for very special moments, but still their use is highly economical. It's a bit of a surprise when you know the full, rich sound of the familiar version. Here's the beginning of the Agnus Dei, the Lamb of God, as most of us know it. Now here's the same passage in the 1893 scoring. The notes are exactly the same, but the scale, in fact, the whole manner of address is quite different. so much more intimate, isn't it, and that in itself is a very foreign word. After all, this was a master of song, chamber music, and often enigmatic solo piano pieces, not a composer of vast ambitious symphonies or choral works. Also, the whole sense of occasion in his requiem is quite different from that of Berlioz's. This is not a big public state funeral, a grand Parisian cathedral, but something one might hear in a side chapel a requiem just for family and close friends, the priest's voice hushed, never raised theatrically. It's about as far as possible from Hector Berlioz's apocalyptic spectacular as you could imagine. But this is so much more than a question of tone, of the manner of address. he had his own views on the essence of the kind of requiem he wanted to offer the world. As organist at La Madeleine, he'd played for a lot of requiems, and had developed an awareness of what he felt people wanted, what they needed, especially in the more intimate kind of funeral, an occasion for the genuinely bereaved, rather than for those who wanted to make a public display of grief, to indulge in the pomp of death. I remember having a conversation about all this with a Jesuit priest once. We were discussing Elgar's dream of Gerontius, and he said that one of the things he thought was most important about the Roman Catholic Mass for the dead was the central idea that there's something we can do to help the deceased. There are prayers we can offer, not just for ourselves, but for them. That their fate isn't entirely dependent on the mercy of God. Perhaps, just perhaps, our intercessions can make a difference. You could sense something of this in one of the two movements that Foray added in 1893, the Offertorium both of these two movements include the libera me are darker in tone and add a darker sound to the requiem's palette a baritone solo the offertorium begins with a rare glimpse of a possible more terrible side of death the image of lost souls lord jesus king of glory deliver the souls of the departed it is presented as a stark string cannon then joined in by the voices quiet intense supplication marked dolcissimo as sweetly as possible. Then listen to the eerily poignant little falling figure on the words De Profundo Lacu from the depths of the abyss. Ne caudant in obscuro, don't let them fall into darkness. There's no Verdian or Berliozian high drama there, but a pathetic repetition, tailing off as though increasingly lost for words. In moments like that in Fores Requiem, I think we sense the authentic voice of grief. Where is the lost one? How do we make sense of this loss? Or well, perhaps the prayer is like that of C.S. Lewis in what, for me, is the most moving of his works, A Grief Observed. Meanwhile, where is God? It's difficult to overestimate how successfully, how delicately, Foray achieves that balance between the sense of loss, of concern for the fate of the lost one, and with the confrontation of the truth of one's own mortality. Lord, make me to know mine end. Significantly, the setting of those words provides the darkest moment in Brahms' still more unorthodox German requiem, Prayers for the self before the awful truth of death are also the basis of the other movement Foray added in 1893, which now becomes the penultimate movement of his requiem, the Libera Me, deliver me, O Lord, from eternal death. Well, for Christians and atheists alike, death is eternal. The thought of one's own eternal non-being can be as stupefying as the thought of hell. Again, Foray is entirely unsensational in the way he sets these words, but it's still Very telling. And there, for a brief moment, Foray allows just that fleeting vision of the words Dies Irae, Day of Wrath, and the stark evocation of judgment in the trumpet fanfare of the brass. Perhaps we could join with the Christian here, facing up to the possibility of some kind of dreadful final reckoning. I'm reminded of a late poem by W.B. Yeats, The Man and the Echo. In which an old man shouts questions into the depths of a mountain cave, trying to catch an answer in the echoes. At the climax he calls out, O rocky voice, shall we in that great night rejoice? What do we know but that we face one another in this place? However, these two later added movements in Foray's Requiem, although they do open out sombre possibilities, they don't really turn this into a tragic Requiem, like those of Mozart, Verdi, or Britain, or a work in which grief sometimes seems to outweigh consolation, like Brahms's. Foray seems to want to offer consolation above all. And in rejecting the Diazire text, he also seems to want to distance himself from the Church's emphasis on final terrors, possibly on frightening the congregation into obedience. Others have certainly heard of something very similar. Writing in 1922, two years before Foray's death, his pupil Nadia Boulanger wrote the following about the Requiem. The Church may judge and condemn. The Master has never expounded this view, any more than he has striven to follow the dogmatism of the text. It might be said that he understood religion more after the fashion of the tender passages in the Gospel according to St John, following St Francis of Assisi rather than St Bernard. His voice seems to interpose itself between heaven and men, usually peaceful, quiet and fervent, sometimes grave and sad, but never menacing or dramatic. It's very hard to disagree with that. And don't forget that Boulanger was writing with Foray still alive and looking over her shoulder, so presumably she knew what she was talking about. In any case, the music seems so often to bear out her words. Let's go to the final section of the offertorium, where the opening prayer returns, the text and music much condensed, but still with hints or touches of the former numbed anguish. But then, at last, all is dissolved one of the most heart-easing amens in the church repertoire. Amen indeed! And consider the most famous passage in the Requiem, the Pierre Jesu, Sweet Lord Jesus. In some performances, sweetness teeters on the edge of sentimentality. Yet, provided the performance is understanding, it never quite falls over. Sweetness is very much in keeping with Boulanger's comments about the tender passages of the Gospel of St John, the gentle St Francis, as opposed to the stern, self-mortifying discipline of St Bernard. Dear Jesus, sweet Lord Jesus, surely there's no wrath in that God. Not everybody likes this approach, though. For instance, the French composer François Poulenc, who rediscovered his Roman Catholic faith later in life, made this slightly surprising remark about the requiem. With age, I have to admit that Foray is a very great musician. But his requiem makes me lose faith, and it is a real penance for me to hear it. It is one of the few things I hate hate in music. Hate? What about this, then, from 1964, the year after Poulenc's death? The French critic Bernard Gavotti wrote, Faure's philosophy could be summarized in four words, desire for the non-existent. There is no one less of a realist than Faure. I have to say, I think that's one of the most ingeniously multifaceted pieces of nonsense I've ever read. You could, for example, argue that nothing is more likely to make one yearn for non-existence more than pure realism. Or, as the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche put it, we all need a bit of illusion simply in order to live. Perhaps the true realist in Foray understood that too. Still, it's interesting, isn't it? Music that's so gentle, so tender, can produce such strong reactions against. Perhaps this in itself... Bears witness to a complexity behind the gentle, barely ruffled surface. And perhaps, despite the sweetness, the tenderness, the consolation, for his requiem touches on sensitive issues of mortality with a little more delicate precision than some of us would like to admit. We'll hear Foray's requiem complete now, in a performance which, while it's based on the final, expanded orchestral version, I think still captures something of that manner of intimacy which was so crucial to Foray's original conception. We'll hear the soprano Ellen Manahan-Thomas, the baritone Roderick Williams, the Sixteen and the Academy of St Martin of the Fields, conducted by Harry Christophers.